All right, fools, welcome to the QTR Podcast. Today is May 14th, 2022. Happy to be with you today. We have a whole lot of shit going on. I don't even know where to begin. Actually, I do. By reminding you that this podcast is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I will shout them out. I will give you the rules for the podcast, and we will get on our way. First and foremost, I want to shout out my friends over at JM Bullion. They are my exclusive gold and silver providers, the only place that I buy my gold and silver bullion. I love these guys because they always have great inventory. They turn around my orders quickly. They've been in business for 10 years, and they've done over $3 billion in sales. QTR podcast listeners have their own contact at JM Bullion, the lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. You can reach out to her via email if you have any questions. If you're not comfortable, you never ordered bullion online before. Anything you want, you can reach right out to Laura. She would be happy to help you out. And otherwise, you can check out jmbullion.com. Everything's on the website. It's simple. It's easy to use. And they're high-quality people that have supported my podcast for a long time, which I genuinely appreciate. So if you're looking for gold and silver bullion, give them a play. Give them a shout. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at the Steam Room. My friends, Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus, are some of the original gangsters of tracking unusual options activity. Before that was a feature that was offered pretty much with any investing and trading services, these guys had pioneered it. They were the first people to understand that you could make money by watching where the money was going in the options market. Uh, Wall Street Jesus is the guy that coined the term sweepers. So when you see Paul uh, put sweeps and call sweeps, that was the guy that came up with that term like fucking 10 years ago. I remember watching him write that shit on Twitter in like 2012. Like, I have no idea what this means. I think I know what it means. And then you learned, and then it, you know, just kind of became its own thing. And then unusual options activity became, you know, a part of CNBC and a part of all these online investing services. And uh, people recognize it now as a great way to uh, potentially telegraph where underlying equities are going. So if you're gonna do that, and it's a great thing to incorporate into your trading strategy, check out the Steam Room because there is no better piece of software that has been around longer and has been updated more consistently uh, than Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus is. They have a wonderful community too. These guys are experts at tape reading. They're experts at market psychology. And they're all around great people and honest people to do business with, which is why I am happy to recommend them also, they are supporters of the podcast, which uh, I love them for. So check out my friends over at The Phone Is Making Fucking Noise When It Shouldn't Be. I mean, Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus over at The Steam Room. I love those guys. Link is in the podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friend George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. George has teamed up with Chris McIntosh, Lynn Alden, Brent Johnson, and numerous other people who understand macro in a way that I wouldn't understand if I lived to be 260 years old. And Rebel Capitalist Pro is where they all come together. They do live question and answer sessions uh, several times a week. George provides tons of content through his Rebel Capitalist YouTube channel. Uh, there's free stuff on there, too, also on his George Gammon uh, YouTube channel. Great guy, good guy to do business with. Rebel Capitalist Pro is a wonderful uh, investment, really, is what it is. You're investing in information. I don't know what the hell you call it. It's a service. I like it. I mean, I have it. I go on the Rebel Capitalist Pro forum. 
you know, I see their model portfolios and things like that. I find it useful. I think George knows what he's talking about. I think he's an honest person really trying to break down how the whole system works, this out-of-control world of central banks for the everyday man. So check out, or woman, <laughs> reminds me of Life of Brian, you know, every man or woman, um, Yes, every man or woman trying to figure out how the hell things are working. You can check out Rebel Capitalist Pro in the podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my favorite Substack, Doomberg. I love reading the Doomberg Collective and their take on things. Experts in things like energy and commodities, which they've been writing a ton about. They have a great style. Uh, and just one of those blogs that when a new post comes out, I have to read it. I feel like... Uh, I feel like I'm, you know, there are certain people that are tuned into the market the way that I am. Uh, like they're skeptics. They're from an Austrian mindset. They have a little libertarian thread running through them. And when they put out new stuff, I just feel like I have to uh, read it or I have to listen to it. It's like the Peter Schiff podcast. You know, he puts out an episode. I know what I'm going to get, right? He's going to be talking about how the PPI print missed by, you know, 0.4 was expected and it was 0.5. And here's what that means. You know, but I feel like I got to listen to it because I enjoy the perspective of these people. You can get anybody else's perspective anywhere. Just turn on CNBC or open Yahoo Finance or whatever, and you can get the mainstream perspective. But when people like Schiff or like my friend Doomberg, uh, when they publish, I feel like you have to know that's a good counterbalance. It's a good counterweight. Uh, you know, like when those big construction cranes lift up giant things in the city, there's always a counterweight on the back of it. That's what these guys are for the markets. So check out Doomberg. That link is in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friends Jay Mintzmeyer, wonderful invest uh, shipping analyst, uh, my buddy Russ Valenti. I'm trying to do it by memory today because I don't have the shit in front of me. But all those people, all of my friends, what does he say? And along came Polly. All of our friends here at Enderby and Friends, and everybody here. That's why I, on behalf of everybody here at Enderby and Friends, are proud to offer you unlimited term life insurance. Whatever the fuck he says, that boardroom scene is awesome. I love that movie. Philip Seymour Hoffman crushes it in that movie. Um, all right, all right, all right. Uh, let's get on with the show. There's all kinds of other shit I'm supposed to say here. I'm not an investment advisor. I don't know what I'm talking about. Nobody on this podcast ever does. Uh, so don't ever listen to this for investing advice. This is not recommendations to buy or sell securities. I hold no licenses, no registrations, etc. And most importantly, this podcast has a three drink minimum and it's Saturday, bitches. So drink up. All right, I feel like after I had Mick West on last week that I needed to kind of retreat back into my own echo chamber. So, uh, because obviously Mick and I don't see eye to eye on everything, uh, but that's okay. I like, that's why I like hearing from him. Um, but this week I wanted to bring somebody that I know, uh, agrees with me on a lot of shit, you know, maybe just boost the ego back up a little bit this week. And, uh, I have my buddy Phil back or Phil Bach. He'll correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, whatever his name is. My friend Phil B will just say Phil B is on the podcast with me. And uh, Phil's a guy that, you know, I kind of met on Twitter, actually. He's followed by a lot of the same people that I'm followed by and vice versa. And we've had a little dialogue in uh, DMs. Uh, we've talked about a bunch of stuff over the last year or two. He's the founder, CEO of AtNav, uh, a startup that's solving the problem of liquidity in the ETF market. Uh, he's previously been the founder, CEO of Exponential ETFs, an ETF issuer and sub-advisor, managing director at the New York Stock Exchange, ever heard of it, uh, and chief investment officer at Signal Advisors. 
Phil, what's going on, dude? Happy to have what's you. What's up, fools? This is uh, <laughs> this is a big thing for me. I'm 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 super excited. I'm a huge fan of the show, as you know. So uh, really happy to be on. How did we even do this? Like, how did we get to this point? From I don't even know how I first started talking to you. You know, I I couldn't even tell you either. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I do remember the moment that I became a, a you know just from a casual listener to a big fan. And when you were you were talking about. Uh, Tom Lee doing, um, you know, technical analysis on CNBC of Bitcoin way back. I mean, this is before even like the first run in 2017. And I almost got into a car accident because I was crying. <laughs> Tears are streaming down. I'm laughing so hard. And uh, that was the moment I got hooked. It's just wonderful, isn't it? Technical analysis of a digital nothing that doesn't exist. It's like, okay, you know, it, you know, it's just and and the thing is, I was just watching CNBC on Friday. I had it on in the background, and uh, it's funny. They went to commercial break right before halftime report, and they they pitched Tom Lee coming on as if it was some like something different, you know, like oh well, well what on the show today we've got Tom Lee and we can't wait to hear what he has to say. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking? About? You hear what he has to say every day, you know, like would it would be better to announce the days that you don't have him on, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, a guest is not going to be interesting when I can tell you what they're going to say before they say it, right? When when I can tell you he's either going to be mega bullish or super bullish, depending on the day. That's you know, that's the oscillation there. That there's not going to be a whole lot that'll keep us on the edge of our seats. It's just I don't know if it's like I'm getting more jaded, or maybe if I'm learning a little bit more and I'm kind of seeing things for what they really are. But I also watched. Um, what the fuck is his name? Uh, Jonas, Adam Jonas on Friday morning. I don't know what they were talking to. Oh, they were talking to him about the Twitter bid, which I don't even think he has coverage on Twitter, but I think that's what they were talking to him about. And then they went off into talking about like electric vehicles. And I was listening to this guy talk and I'm like, I doesn't really seem like he has any idea what he's, talking about like it just seems like he's just like a you know the example of the kid that has a book report due that didn't do any work on it and didn't read the book you know and i don't there know are, there are narratives there are narratives that work when price is backing it up there are stories and narratives in a in a you know raging bull market that knows no pullback there are stories that will fly that will work and people mm -hmm. want to hear the one to justify why is the price going up you know nobody wants to hear that it's just it's entirely 100 percent the fed Every day, so there are stories that right. that work, and then when sentiment turns and it's turning now, all of a sudden, you know, you start thinking, wait a minute, that that doesn't quite fly, and and that's what we're starting to see. Yeah, I wrote that in one of my articles too, like over the last year at some point. Live by the bullshit narrative sword, die by the bullshit narrative sword, and you know, the point of saying that was. You know, you have the cart in front of the horse, right? Everybody knows it's the Fed. William Bill Cohen, who I had on, who I disagree with on some things, but wrote a great article for Airmail last summer that I was quoted in, just talking basically about how Kathy Wood's success was a product of the Fed being a rising tide that lifted all boats and or lobotomized asset managers. And, you know, the point of what I was writing when I wrote that was – she was doing well, and I don't even know if she knew why she was doing well. But when, she, you know, when her when Tesla started to take off and Ark started to go crazy, they would bring her on, and it would force her to come up with a reason why. How you know, Kathy? Why have you been so successful? 
You know, and then she's got to be like, yeah, why have I been so successful? So she says, well, you know, it's just it's just innovation or it's just, you know, the market pricing and growth or whatever. And, uh, you know, but then when things turn, you know, because you've been so incorrect on the way up, you really lack any type of guardrails on the way down because you haven't really you didn't you never identified in the first place what the real catalyst was. So how are you supposed to be able to explain it on the way down? Right. Well, well, we're seeing that a lot in in other, you know, in other areas, too, you know, crypto, especially where people, you know, people's kind of, you know, best hopes and 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 wishes were calcified on the way up. And, and these, you know, these ideas, hey, I think maybe this thing could can work. I think maybe this thing can go up. And then, you know, you, you get backed up by by, you know, incredible price movement and people just feel, you know, more and more emboldened and and right. certain of themselves. And then they're not prepared for for the turn. They're not prepared for the turn. But you said in the beginning that you're back into your echo chamber with with this podcast. That's actually something that we disagree on. I'm I'm a fan of Kathy Wood, and you know not necessarily her investing strategy. I mean, to me, she you know her her thesis sounds much like pretty you know pretty much like any VC that you'll talk to. But I think she's done a tremendous service for the industry in that you know coming coming out with conviction and coming out with a differentiated strategy, whatever the strategy is, just on the fact that it was so differentiated. And, you know, we've, we're in this era of just, you know, the marching band, the, the, the never ending uh, waves of passive flows. And, you know, somebody coming in with, with a real strategy that's that's different and telling the story. I think she, in some respects, saved asset management, you know, saved active management, certainly. And I think, you know, regardless of the outcome of, of her shop and her funds going forward, I think a lot of people that criticize her, in fact, owe her a debt of gratitude because, you know, she really brought back the idea of, you know, stock picking that that was, you know, close to dying. Well, first off, you're right uh, about that. And I know you're looking at this from a different perspective because you're an ETF guy. And so you're like an ETF specialist, which obviously I am not. And you are correct that before ARK came along, uh, or at least in its infancy, and I, I remember I wrote articles about this, how, you know, the days of the active manager were kind of over. Because all you had to do was throw your money into, you know, the SPY ETF and just watch it go up. And that was it. And so there was, you know, every time Einhorn or Ackman or one of these guys would write a hedge fund letter, there was always discourse and dialogue about whether or not active managers still have a role in the market. And I remember writing on more than one occasion that it's going to be when... Uh, you know, either when the Fed steps out of the picture or, you know, basically when the gravy train ends, that people are going to want to look to active managers because at that point you're going to have to pick stocks. You know, you're not just going to be able to throw a dart at a dartboard and, you know, any one of those equities might go up. Now, you know, look, I, I, I want to unpack what you said. I mean, you think she's doing a service in terms of you know, putting active management and ETFs on the board, right? I mean, you're not heralding her for her stock selections, are you? You know, look, in, in an environment that we've had where, you know, we've had the, the largest, you know, the largest fiscal expansion ever, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, what you want is just you want super high beta. And she rode the high beta train on the way down. Now that things are changing, you know, would I still invest that way? Probably not. Probably not, but I think I think people treat her unfairly. Is, is is kind of the point. It's not it's not so much a it's not so much me passing judgment on her. You know, I mean, look, she the success that she's had, and then the failure after. But but the success that she's had, I'm not in a place to judge. You know, her her investing acumen. I'm saying that 
her being a voice out there is beneficial to the capital markets. I mean, the big problem here, the the you know the overarching thing that we have is the capital markets are you know, quickly become, I mean, they're, they're not free markets anymore. So we had this incredible system of free market capitalism that led to the most, you know, the, 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 you know, most successful capital markets in the history of the world and all this, you know, a hundred years of, of, you know, expansion and, and, you know, great times for this country. And we're losing that now we're, we're, you know, we're turning into a system of managed markets of politicized markets of, you know, just systematic sure. investing. And, you know, this idea by, by the Fed and the government that the market can never go down, we're never going to let it go down. And it's, you know, we're losing the markets. And I think she is a footnote in, you know, even if not intentionally, but I think she is part of the solution to that. I think if we had more Kathy Woods and maybe some on the value side and some on the fundamental side and some on the hard asset side and, you know, in different areas that, you know, maybe me and you, our personal investing thesis are more aligned. But if we had more voices like that who are willing to make a call, you know, not like, you know, closet indexing and something. I mean, you look at these active shops, you look at the largest asset managers and their active funds. They're basically indexed and they're just beta. You know, a little bit on the edges. Okay, they like this stock. They don't like that stock. They're just beta. It's all beta. So to have someone come in and say, I'm going to do something different and I'm going to make noise about it and I'm going to have conviction and I'm not going to be shaken out of my methodology the first time the market pulls back. You know, I think if we had more of that, the what, markets would be in a better place. What is her methodology? Well, I mean, you know, look, I don't want to speak for her, but, but you know, well, I, I think mean, you you know, just, what she talks about is the idea of a long run, you know, a, a, a long run vision on you know, real innovation. And, and that's what she's looking for in her view. What does that mean though? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, look, I'm not, you're talking about you know, companies that are going to disrupt industries. I mean, what, what does that mean? I mean, how do you think she's been treated unfairly? You said she's been treated unfairly. She's, she's made herself extraordinarily wealthy and now she has, and she had vastly outperformed the, uh, her benchmark heading into like a year ago. Um, or about 18 months ago, I think when her flagship fund hit its all time high and now she's underperforming, uh, the S and P over, you know, the course of its, uh, over the course of arc ARKK's inception in the process, she's made herself a shitload of money. Um, how do you, and she gets unlimited media coverage. So how is she being treated unfairly? There's a contingent of asset managers or professional investors that were on the other side of that trade that were you know value managers yeah. let's say or other quantitative fundamental managers that have just gotten smoked year after year after year and now that's changing and finally you know we're starting to see you know some of these funds perform but there were a lot of people that were just getting smoked i mean people who were on top of the world let's take einhorn mm -hmm. right or someone like that there are people who are just getting smoked and i think you know the the criticism from within the industry directed at her was you know often vitriolic in a way that I don't think, you know that I think was excessive, um, and and that's really what I'm referring to. And I think the same people that were the most vitriolic couldn't see around the corner that the markets are cyclical. Whatever the forces are that you know that pendulum that goes from growth to value or sure. whatever the you know the different the paradigms are, it will shift back. But in the meantime, having somebody who's out there standing by a differentiated methodology with courage and conviction to do so regardless of whether or not she's right or wrong in the long term just having that out there i think is a benefit to those same asset managers yeah i think that's a fair point and that's you know that's part of what makes a market too like you said there were counterparties to her trades on the way up just as there's counterparties to her trades on the way down i think a lot of people just feel as though you know 
when you look at like some of the things that she says about, you know, when you look at some of her models that she puts online, she talks about some of her methodology and you look at some of the things that she's done over the last year with changing how she reports, uh, you know, her, her ETFs performance on her website, what, you know, what, um, chronology she uses to do that and things like that. I think those are the kind of things that leave a bad taste in people's mouth. And I still, you know, to this day, and I've congratulated her on her success. You know, look, anybody that can go out and hustle and make, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions for herself is obviously an exceptional success is going to make more money than I've ever made in my life. So, you know, we'll, we'll put that out there. But having said that, you know, I, I still, you know, look, I don't know. Have, have, I can't get past what happened with Tesla in 2020. Maybe I'm just, you know, maybe I'm just one of these guys that refuses to accept reality. But when I watch what happened with, you know, Bill Huang, and I watched what was going on with some of the stocks that he was in, and I watched the action in Tesla in early 2020, leading through, I guess, mid-2021, that caused that company to 10x, uh, you know, which is a serious move. Um, and the fact that I noticed the call buying in that name before it kind of took off and I was kind of like, wow, this is, this is interesting. It was right around the time the world health organization first started holding, uh, press conferences, uh, for the pandemic. I was seeing these, you know, incredible call buys come in. I was like, wow, this is crazy. You know, like something's going on here. Uh, given that, outlier which i still think is an outlier i still don't think we know the whole story there but maybe i'm wrong maybe i and maybe i'm just getting it wrong and there were people that were extremely bullish legitimately and there was a legitimate gamma squeeze and she was in front of it and she was you know super smart but having said that i can't get past that that outlier is really what propelled her to be recognized as this visionary. It wasn't the performance of Roku, you know, it wasn't the performance of, uh, you know, whatever, Robin Hood, right? She was buying these names near the top. It was Tesla that did it for her, right? So, so the ability for people to manipulate stocks through gamma squeeze has been, I mean, I think you were the first one, certainly the first that brought it to my attention with regards to Tesla. But it, it's the same thing with AMC and, and Jamie and a, a number of others. Sure. And, you know, it's it's incredible to me, just absolutely incredible that these markets are so tightly watched by the regulators. Every single trade is so tightly watched, and they seemingly allowed it to happen without saying anything. I mean, still to this day, the idea that you know GameStop and AMC were driven up by just a groundswell of of retail traders is so absurd on its face. I mean, maybe they piled in after the fact and chased the performance like they do in every asset class, but it was very obviously manipulated by somebody with deep pockets. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, look, there, there's, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I know there's some relationship between Kathy and, and, and Bill Huang, but I don't see any evidence or reason to think that she was involved in anything nefarious like that. Yeah, me um, neither. I think and what, I just want to make that clear. Possible, though, there's no evidence. I mean, and this is, yeah, there's no evidence, and, and, and it's total speculation, but what could be possible if I were, you know, a market, you know, a gamma squeezer, if I were, you know, somebody who was able to manipulate the market and had no, you know, qualms about it, I might look for someone like Roaring Kitty who's making outrageous calls on uh, on GameStop and use that as, you know, kind of the cloak of, uh, of sure. plausibility to drive the stock up. I might take someone like Kathy talking about Tesla as the cloak of plausibility that maybe this one stock can be worth, you know, this 2% of the auto sales 
and it's worth more than every other automaker combined. <laughs> right. I mean, it's laughable. But but, you know, somebody else is saying that this thing's worth, you know, uh, 20 times what it's trading at. So maybe I use that as, you know, a way to make it a little less a little less noticeable, a little sure. more believable. Um, but that's total speculation. But I mean, regardless, there, there's you know, as far as I'm concerned, even if we knew for certain that Tesla was, you know, manipulated and gamma squeezed, um, there's no reason, in my opinion, just because Kathy was bullish on it, to suspect her to have been involved in something like that. I don't suspect that she was involved, and I don't have any evidence of anything, as I've often said. I just find it very interesting. And I think that if that event doesn't happen, then I think, uh, you know... And I, and I just think there's a lot of critical questions there that nobody asks because they're too busy to, you know, just uh, take take the performance at face value. And then I, I feel like on the way down now, you know, I feel like, you know, her strategy or whatever you called it earlier, her, you know, whatever her active management strategy is, is, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, it, and it's it's a good point. I mean, look, it, you make some really good points earlier, right? The, the the point of being an active manager is to understand, you know, macro and market dynamics, which means, you know, even if your strategy is don't fight the Fed, you want to get in front of it if stocks are going to rip higher. You know, this is like when we hit the the lows after the pandemic and they announced all that QE. I mean, one of the things I said was, look, it's going to be a race to 4,000 between uh, the SPX and gold. Because, you know, as much as the economy is shut down right now, it doesn't even matter because people are going to there's all this liquidity out there and the Fed's backstopping everything. So stocks are going to go haywire. And specifically at the time I, w I was looking at financials because everybody was saying, oh, you know, the issue is it's a systemic financial issue. And I was like, no, it's not. You know, it's a it's a pandemic. And, and the big banks are, you know, can go to the discount window and get unlimited money whenever they want from the Fed. Yeah. Um, yep. So I guess part of being an active manager is. You know, even if you're not buying it for value, if it's going to go up and you ride it up, you know, you're not wrong. Right. But then the question is, you know, how do you not see when the Fed says, all right, the gravy train is ending, that some of these things are going to collapse? I mean, you know. I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, that's a fair it's a fair it's a fair point. I look I mean, you know, I think. The only thing you could say to that is that, you know, her job is not to make macro bets. Her job is to provide her strategy consistently so that other people can allocate to it or not That's fair. as a tool. Yep. Um, but but no, I mean, look, you know, some of the criticism is certainly fair. I just think I just think, you know, it, it's been a little overheated with her specifically. And I think people kind of lost sight of the fact that, you know, she's just she's just another she's just another manager who's making bets. But she you know, what what sets her apart is not necessarily, you know, what other people see, which is that she's was, you know, had incredible performance for for a few, you know, for a three year run. But to me, what really sets her apart is that she had true conviction in a methodology and a strategy that was a little bit different than what everyone else is doing. And I just wish we had more of that. Yeah. And I think that's a great point. And, you know, People have the right to invest with her or bet against her accordingly, you know, and that's that's what makes a market. So, I mean, she's out there and, uh, you know, if you like her, you can you can buy her shit. And if you don't like her, you can, you know, shorter ETF. You can you know, there's any number of ways to bet with or against her. And I think that's uh, that's a good point that you made earlier, too. I mean, now it just seems like there's an ETF for everything, though. It, you know, I, I don't know what what differentiates her, you know, as an actor like when you were saying, you know, you think it's good for the market that she's out there, you think it's because she just puts a face 
to a uh, to a strategy because there's there's unlimited ETFs for all kinds of different strategies out there. There there are. That's true. And and there's by the way, there's a ton of ETFs that just mimic in one form or another, but mimic what she's doing because, you know, look again, asset managers aren't always looking around the corner. So instead of building, you know, CTA funds and hard asset funds and and you know funds that are going to be you know useful in the environment that we're marching into right now, everyone's looking at flows and trying to chase where the money went last quarter. So as she was, you know, successful in not only in performance but in gathering assets, all these other asset managers pile in and they you know start copying and and you know you have to wonder by the way. Is is that also one of the reasons why her performance was so outrageous on the way up and why it's been so bad on the way down? Because it's not just the flows that she's had; it's the flows that other similar funds have had as they, you know, try to, you know, steal some of the magic and, and get some of those assets. I mean, really, you know, narrative drives flows and flows drive performance. And I think a lot of people miss that, especially as you get to like passive and you know what, what people call passive, which to me is market cap weighted, specifically market cap weighted index funds, is. You know, we've had this Vanguard story about fees, which is a very, very good story and a very good narrative. And that's played. It's played really well with financial advisors, specifically with DIY investors. And it's led to, you know, a 20 year run of nonstop flows into index, you know, not only index funds, but also people who are doing direct indexing and, and you know, institutions that are just managing it themselves, but basically market cap weighted methodologies. And sure. that has led to outperformance of those strategies. And, you know, it's been it's been a beast. It's been a monster. And, it, you know, like everything else, it cannot go forever. Mathematically, you know, the biggest companies, they just can't keep getting bigger than the median forever indefinitely. We're starting to see that pull back in, you know, which is something I've been waiting for for a long time. But, you know, it's the same thing where, where you know, narrative drives flows, right? And flows drive performance. And that's that's the cycle. Yeah, my buddy uh, Eric Balchunas just pointed out this morning that ARC posted its biggest week of inflows in over a year with uh, 534 million in inflows last week, uh, top 1% among ETFs. It's its fifth straight week of inflows. Uh, crazier though, it's taken in nearly $2 billion since February 11th, during which it lost 39%. I mean, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty astonishing, those figures, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so someone's trying to catch, you know, catch a bottom, right? That's what he's so saying. Someone, and someone he's saying size, that people are using yeah. it as a uh, people are using it as a trading tool, also. Yeah, like, like, yeah, right. Instead of uh, leverage Nasdaq, you, you know, you buy Ark. It's, you know, it's going to give you well, somewhere between like a two and a three beta on the queues. So, you know, you're trying to pick a bottom, right? You can't use leverage, so maybe you just buy Ark as a as a bogey. I mean, to me, that's not necessarily. You know that that's probably tactical or short-term money. I'm guessing, but but look, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Maybe people feel like, you know, they wanted to get in on the way up, but they don't want to chase the valuations. And now that the valuations are reasonable, it's a better time, and that wouldn't be the worst idea. What about a guy like Ross Gerber? Is he good for markets? <laughs> that, my friend, that is bait. <laughs> well, I know. Well, you, look, you, you know, I, I could actually understand your point with with. Kathy, I can actually understand the point that you're making, which is, you I know, mean, look, look, she's got a strategy. She's putting her strategy out there. She's sticking to it. 
People, you know, nobody's forcing anybody to invest in ARK. Totally understood. You can bet with her. I've been enjoying, actually, I've been enjoying shorting ARKK while buying some of the components because I think that there's some components like, you know, Zoom, for instance, which is a, you know, fucking free cash machine. Uh, and even last week, I bought some uh, Unity and I bought some Roblox, both of which she owned. And I enjoyed, you know, using the ETF kind of as a, as a hedge, uh, you know, to, to short against that. Um, you know, so nobody's forcing anybody to, uh, to get in there. You know, what's, what's Ross Gerber's funds benefit to the markets? Because to the best of my understanding, his strategy is, I don't really know what his strategy is. Do what Kathy Woods do. He described Kathy Wood as his benchmark, I think last week. <laughs> I, I, I don't know him personally. I'm, I'm not, I'm not familiar with his fund, but, but, but I will say that you know, look, it's, it's like the old meme, right? That, uh, you know, in a bull market, everyone thinks they're a superstar and everyone thinks they can pick stocks. In a bear market, we, you know, we see who has staying power and who doesn't and who, you know, who is really in this for, you know, because they have expertise or they have some sort of edge over the market. They have, you know, the ability to analyze or, or access, you know, things that other people can. And we haven't had that in a long time. We haven't had an opportunity to wash out. You know, the people who are jumping on a bandwagon, the people that are chasing oh, chasing performance years. 15 years. And it's it's a long past time we did. And now we're starting to see that. And, you know, look, I don't want anyone to fail. And, and you know, I hope the best for everyone. But I think overall, just from the point of view of the markets as a whole, I think having a little bit of a flush out, a little bit of, you know, see who's naked when the tide goes out. Probably not an unhealthy thing for the market. A little bit. We could use a tsunami going outward is, is what <laughs> yeah, we need. We right. need like a War of the Worlds style uh, tide going out. And, you know, <clears throat> look, somebody was criticizing me on Twitter last week or whatever saying, you know, look, the, I'm kind of the same as Kathy Wood, right? She's got her strategy. She sticks to it, whatever. And I have my shtick and I stick to it. I mean, it's not a shtick. It's what I really believe. But, you know, I'm, you know, and I can kind of see that, you know, I'm kind of the inverse to her, right? She is the personification of uh, riding the Fed wave and just kind of picking, you know, the highest growth, highest speculation uh, stuff. And I'm, you know, the total opposite. I think the entire system is uh rigged and you know i'm looking for the opposite right i'm looking for value and i'm looking at fundamentals and all the things that haven't mattered over the last 15 years so i mean i guess that's a fair point i guess that's 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 what makes a market right yeah exactly exactly so let's talk about crypto which i know that we discussed for like 30 seconds before you came on uh what the hell is going on I think it's pretty straightforward, actually. I mean, you know, people love to people love complexity. It's one of the things I learned actually by watching these crypto markets is that they offer just enough complexity yeah. for people to really sink their teeth into. But the complexity is not like built ground up. It's like building a skyscraper on a you know kind of a a weak premise. You might say. Yeah, it's in like some, a whole bunch of it's like it's like a cloud of jargon around nothing. It's like how many ways can you say nothing? There, there are parts of the market that I think are are truly gonna gonna change things or have the potential to, depending on what happens over the long term. So, like for example, you got these DAOs, these uh, decentralized autonomous organizations. You got the ideas of smart contracts, and now there's some platforms that are implementing them that I think are are, are truly, you know, truly high potential game changers. But you know, the idea of you know, it's, it's like when people, you know, prognosticate, oh, you know, Bitcoin's going here or there, you know, you always got to ask, and then what? And then what? So it's going to go to 100,000 and just sit there and, and be flat, or it's going to go to a million and then it's going to sit there. And, I, you know, I'll repeat something that, that you said, and I don't know if it was yours or you heard it from someone, but, 
you know, that that crypto was the excess valve or the runoff valve of the economy. So we've yeah. had this, you know, wave of, you know, just the Fed way overdid it, obviously, by flooding the market with money. And, you know, even even in this euphoric bull market, there's a point at which people will gag at the valuations of equities. So where's the money going to go? And there just wasn't enough places for the money to go. And here comes crypto. And they just soaked up, what was it, like $2 trillion in assets, like nothing. Yeah, it got to $3 um, trillion almost. Incredible. Now, of course, that's mark to market, right? So that's not sure. like three trillion liquid or, or truly three trillion dollars of cash going in. But, you know, it soaked up certainly a lot of the money, certainly took a lot of the thunder from, you know, from gold and some of the hard assets. And, you know, look, there, there are parts of it that that I love. Like I said, there's a couple of the products that I think are good. And ultimately, if they succeed and they're able to create a, you know, a, a monetary system outside the Fed and, and all these different things, I think that's great. And I think they might be able to, but but not like this, not with, you know, with people just, you know, chasing performance and thinking that they can get rich just by the simple act of owning a Bitcoin. It's, do you think, you know, it's do you pretty, think central it's banks and, 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 and global, <laughs> do you think the major governments globally and central banks are going to allow for a system to be created outside the world of central banks? That's right. No, that's I'm right. asking you, do you think? No, I mean, obviously there's, there's going to be, you know, forces pushing against it that have, that have been missing so far. But I mean, the real, you know, look in the short term, in the long term, who knows what's going to happen in the short term, you know, there are some real left tail, you know, risk events that, you know, are, are, are really, you know, like, I mean, you know, huge, huge risk that people don't seem to be appreciating right now. And you got, you know, the obviously the, the micro strategy margin call, which is looming, you know, you've got this tether situation, which. You know, again, I'm not I'm not an expert in it, but it seems to me, based on everything I've read, that there is evidence that they do not have anything close to the uh, reserves that they that they claim to have. That's 80 billion dollars supposedly in, in in tether that could, you know, potentially. I mean, the contagion of that is going to hit every aspect of the market. So there's some real left tail events, and and you know, the idea that they can turn sentiment. The whole thing runs on sentiment. So sentiment right. is not going to turn you fork. You can't get a V-shaped recovery unless you have a catalyst event. And I don't see the upside catalyst as much as I see these downside risks. I think we have a real skew right now in in short term in possible outcomes for Bitcoin. I'm, you know, I'm watching it. And a lot of a lot of people, a lot of very very smart people I know are, are you know in this and in it in size and and you know true believers in it. And I just wish that the the purists, the people that really are in it for for reasons that I tend to agree with, for the ideas of decentralization, all that. I sure. wish that they had done a better job at self policing the you know the promoters and the charlatans that have been out there this whole time and i think they they didn't they they turned some of these people into celebrities i was at a conference i saw people are taking selfies with michael saylor and with uh and pomp and it's like what are you taking a selfie like what's what has this guy done to earn your yeah. your awe like all know. he did was say that this thing is going up to infinity and get widows and orphans to buy it it's like you know they, they i think they really did a poor job of self-policing their own behavior and allowing these people just in the service of number go up, allowing well, people to become celebrities that shouldn't be. It was, yeah, it reminds me of when I was like looking at Herbalife like 10 years ago and I was researching, you know, whatever. And I came across video of them at a, like one of those extravaganzas, you know, which is where you pack a stadium full of 50,000 Herbalife distributors and you throw a big party, uh, you know, to, under the guise of making people feel as though they're a part of some, you know, incredible thing. Uh, and I remember that the company president, Des Walsh, walked on stage at one point and, and the people in the front row had 
pads of paper and pens and they were trying to get his autograph and I was <laughs> I was thinking to myself like who the fuck wants Des Walsh's autograph like where outside of the fucking like bubble that you guys live in does anybody give a fuck about Des Walsh's autograph like what is it gonna do like it's gonna appreciate and turn into like the uh, the fucking Honus Wagner baseball card and be worth a million dollars someday you know 999 <laughs> out of a thousand households nobody's ever heard his fucking name before you know and most people that have even heard of Herbalife you know they know it's a fucking MLM you know it's not worth getting involved with probably and so uh you know, it's just like, yeah, it's interesting. And I see a lot of that, too, when I see things like Michael Saylor. And I see things like, you know, Pompliano. And I wanted to have Pompliano on because I wanted to talk to him. You know, I've I've watched a lot of, like, what these guys have done publicly. Um, you know, I've watched, uh, I've watched Pompliano's debate with Peter Schiff. And it just seems like he always kind of runs into an impasse where there's something that he can't really answer or can't really get around. And, you know, you just wonder, like, what, like why are we holding these people up it's it's really strange it's a very seductive brew phil of like of this asset class coming out of nowhere that has done so well over such a short period of time that that like that that aroma kind of just brings people in, you know, like that's like Spanish fly to like unsophisticated investors, you know, that scene in Ocean's and sophisticated 13, too. When and he, sophisticated too. Yeah. When he puts the Gilroy on and Ellen Barkin, you can see the fucking, the, the fumes from the Gilroy going up her nose and she starts getting turned on. You know, it's like that. It's like Spanish fly for those people, you know, never mind the fact that it's an entire asset class that's based on digital nothing, fine you know and i can already i'm already gonna get emails for it dude you don't fucking understand it i do understand it that's the fucking problem the problem is i do understand it um you know that combined with you know kind of group think combined with like this i don't know like herd it's like the worst of the worst so then like all of a sudden when you get somebody that got in early or has the appearance of wealth or somebody that's out there even just trumpeting your uh, the narrative that you need to succeed in order to make money, that person, I guess, becomes an asset to you. And it's it's really funny. I was looking this morning on Twitter, and, you know, obviously, look, sentiment has gotten more skeptical over the last few weeks since Bitcoin started crashing, since the Terra thing happened. And I was looking at a tweet that somebody put up about one of those bored ape NFTs, right? And... You know, it was just the same sentence like three months ago, which is I'm buying this because, you know, it's on the blockchain and I'm going to turn around and be able to sell it for 10x what I bought it versus looking at the same exact sentence now and just thinking like, man, like how did this feel when somebody said this three months ago? It felt like it was a certainty. It felt like this guy was, you know, dialed in and he was on the forefront of spearheading the future of you know artwork and how it's transacted and what does it sound like now that sentiment has shifted well it sounds like a bunch of bullshit you know it sounds like a bunch of nonsense and it's just crazy how overall sentiment can kind of shift you know a, a perspective on things like that and i think we're gonna see some more of that as you know skepticism continues i think people are gonna be having some real aha moments i mean what do you think 
I, I tend to agree. I think people's first impression of some of this stuff is probably the right one, you know, and, and I think a lot of people changed their tune when they saw price moving, you know, that, that great quote, nothing changes sentiment like price. Right. And, and, you know, and then those bold sentiments just get calcified and people now, you know, they're, they're invested in it. So they, so they want to hear, you know, you've got all these confirmation biases They want to hear what they want to hear. And, and they, you know, just start, you know, believing more and more in what they, and what they want the outcome to be. And um, I think they've gotten a little away from, from the center, from the people they're trying to convince. But, you know, you know, you know, an asset class is, is in trouble when, you know, the rallying cry is hodl, is don't sell. Right. That's the rallying cry, right? Because what happens if you sell? So it's not about, you know, we're going to educate you about this. And, you know, there's no, the use of the word community is another one I love, right? There's no like small cap community. There's right. no like, you know, gold miner community. No, it's a bunch of people trying to, in a zero sum game, trying to rip each other off and get the best deal and buy the exactly. best asset. Exactly. But this one is a community. Come on, it's not a community if if everyone involved in it is trying to separate you from your yeah. money. Why That's price it? Why price it in dollars? Right, right. You know, right. If a bitcoin is a bitcoin, and that's you know, and you're a purist, you're a maximalist. You know, why even worry about the price in dollars? It's just you know, and the idea of a community, like you said, that's like affinity fraud kind of stuff. You know, I'm not saying that it is an affinity fraud, but I'm saying like. Those are the kind of dynamics that wind up in play with affinity frauds. You get people all from the same ethnicity or people all from the same religion or people all from the same, you know, geography, right? And you kind of sink in with one of them and then all of a sudden it's like, ah, you know, we're a community and we're all here to help each other. And, you know, I went through this shit when I, like, first started investing and, uh, you know, back in the days of iHub and, you know, and the Yahoo Finance message boards, you'd find some shit co that had some story. And before I knew anything about equity analysis, you would buy it. And then you would be like, oh, I'm so grateful for the other community of holders and the people, you know, you still see that shit now with bag holders, right? Like people that are bag holding fucking, you know, biotechs that go to zero, you know, it's the community here is strong. It's like, yeah, you know, it's not really about community like you're saying, but you see it on this grand scale with crypto. Yeah, I mean, call, let's let's see if they call it a community when you know everyone's looking for a bid and, and trying to get out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and again, I'm not I'm not rooting for that, and I don't know. Look, I'm I'm not the smartest guy in the world here. I I'm just an idiot with you know. I mean, I I could be completely wrong, right? And I recognize that right now. But you know, there, there's there's all sorts of different possibilities and possible outcomes, and there isn't a possible outcome where everyone's running for the exit door and there's no liquidity on the way down because let's say Tether has you know, has dumped, or let's say, you know, Sailor and, you know, the people of El Salvador are desperate to get, <laughs> to get whatever they can for their collection of Bitcoins. Right. And, you know, let, let's see if they're still referring to it as a community when they're all fighting to to hit the bid first. It's going to be, it's going it, to, you know, it could potentially be ugly. It could potentially be ugly. And it could, look, you know, I could be wrong. It could turn around and, and run for, you know, for who knows how long. I mean, the, you know, the market could certainly stay irrational, as I learned in 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, when I thought the market's been overvalued all that time so what do i know but you know the, you know just back to your point though about you know the use of the word community and the way if you look at the language used by some of the you know quote-unquote famous promoters of this stuff it is you know very very deliberate and sneaky language they're you know they are master persuaders they are master storytellers and they're consistent with their message over and over again and it's been very very effective it can't go forever, though. That you know, that level of storytelling and finding new people to come in is uh, is you know, like I said, that's where I get to, 
you know, the, the, the idea that, that the people who are the purists and there are lots of purists in the Bitcoin space and the people that are in it for the right reasons have done a very poor job of calling it out and self-policing that kind of behavior. Well, and it's not just, uh, you know, the language has definitely gotten, I think, I think from the beginning, you know, there, there's a tendency to, as it gets larger and as more and more people get involved and as the law of large numbers comes into play because Bitcoin becomes more expensive, uh, you know, the, the language has to get a little bit more sensational, right? It has to get a little bit more. I can't stop thinking about, and I don't know if you watched it. I can't stop thinking about the interview, the debate on Kitco between Alex Mashinsky and Peter Schiff. Alex Mashinsky is the guy from Celsius. Everybody knows who Peter Schiff is. Did you ever watch that interview? No, I didn't. Okay, so I wrote an article, um, which is free on my blog. It's called Bitcoin one hubris laden interview closer to a day of reckoning so if you go on my blog fringe finance it's from november 22nd 2021 um and it's there's a link to the whole interview there and you can watch it if you want but the shit that came out of this guy's mouth alex mashinsky okay as he's arguing he's trying to make the argument against gold which ultimately at the end of the debate he admitted you know was going to go up and, and for Bitcoin for crypto for Celsius for his platform you know here's an actual quote from him uh, during the midst of this debate quote gold has zero value yes you can use it in jewelry and you can use it to build high fidelity electronic equipment but that doesn't mean it has any value what's your response to it like a quote like that I, I think you know look I, I think <laughs> I mean, there's nothing to say to that. I mean, that's 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 totally delusional. It's yeah. completely delusional. He also said Bitcoin pays a yield. I'm going to read uh, a part of this um, blog post to you, and you could just give me your response. Um, the absolute worst and most irresponsible of all the arguments from Mashinsky came when he suggested to viewers of the debate many of whom lack financial sophistication, that both Bitcoin and gold pay a yield. Of course, what he meant was that they pay a yield on his platform, but he failed to qualify his statements to make that clear. Neither asset pays a yield in general, and he knows that. As Schiff noted, the capital to pay a yield has to come from somewhere. In dividend-paying companies, it comes from their retained earnings. Bitcoin and gold don't earn anything on their own, so there's nowhere to draw from to pay a yield, let alone a 5% yield that Mashinsky was claiming during the debate. Okay, this guy was claiming that Bitcoin pays a 5% yield, right? And Schiff honed in on this fallacy and, like, immediately, repeatedly asked him, like, where does the yield come from? Uh, you know, of course, he had no answer. But this is exactly what you're talking about, Phil, right? Like this kind of language, saying things like this. Bitcoin pays a yield to people that don't understand it. Yeah, it's really amazing that, you know, you look at the regulatory environment on the, you know, in the registered security side. And you look at what like fund managers, 40 Act funds, some mutual funds, ETFs, what, what they're allowed to do. I mean, you'd be like, you're literally not allowed to say your ticker. If you, if you, if somebody, you know, hits me up on Twitter and say, Hey, Phil, you know, can you tell me again the name of your reverse cap ETF? What I can't tell you the name. I can't tell you the ticker. I, I mean, you can't do anything. If somebody writes an article, I can't just post it. If somebody else, a third party article on, let's say, 
Wall Street Journal or CNBC. I can't just post it as an asset manager. I can't even say like, hey, you know, I'm kind of feeling like maybe values in favor of the cycle. You can't say anything, right? But but they can say literally anything. And, you know, we've had people say, um, you know, you should sell your home or mortgage your home and put it all in Bitcoin. That's been said recently, like literally telling people, you know, you know, in, in, in the securities market, in the regular markets, if I'm, let's say, lending out my stock, let's say I run a fund and I lend it out um, and I, you know, to enhance my yield. Well, I have to, there's all sorts of disclosures. I have to manage the, uh, you know, the, the, the risks associated with it. I have to make sure that, you know, I have to manage, I mean, oh, there's a whole process, there's a whole like thing in place here. And, and we just saw just now, I mean, I don't know what day you're releasing the podcast, but two days ago. We had the depegging of, uh, of of Terra, and we saw what happened with Luna. Um, and you know, it's it's should be pretty obvious to everyone that there's no free yield, there's no risk-free yield. If the higher the yield is, the higher probably the risk is. But you need to understand. I had somebody tell me that you know there was some uh, some crypto that was paying a 15% yield, and I asked them how they're doing it, and they said, well, it's complicated. You wouldn't understand it. They said to <laughs> me, I said, I, I you know look again, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but you know I've, I've pretty good at sitting down and trying to figure things out let me you know try me Let, let's see if i can explain and of course you know it, it got to a point where it's clear they themselves did not understand where the yield was coming from um i mean at a certain point though at a certain point chris you got to say caveat emptor you have to say that if you're dumb enough to believe that you're getting a free yield out of a digital token that you kind of deserve the you know you're taking on risk that uh you should be aware of right i mean we sure. all have the same we're all humans. We're all the same cognitive ability. And if you're going to be that diluted, then, you know, you're taking on the risk. You're taking on the risk. You're eating it. And and people are about to learn it the hard way. I like that when people say you wouldn't understand, you know, right. Like you should, right. you should say to them what you should have said is, listen, motherfucker, I do understand. The problem is I do understand. OK, I understand, you know, what in the commercial paper world you know, a 15% coupon looks like in terms of risk, okay? And it's, you know, absurd, insane, pornographic amount of risk, you know, and here you are kind of like casually offering it to me and you can't really explain how it works, you know? You explain how it works, you know? I I get it, right? And, and that's, I don't know, that's, uh, it's going to be certainly, you know, I feel like the psychology, I mean, here's a question for you. With... With Terra breaking its peg, do you feel like something psychologically has kind of – do you feel like the, the the snowball has kind of started to roll down the hill a little bit psychologically when it comes to crypto? Do you feel like it's yes. the beginning of something? Yes, 100%. I mean, look, first of all, there was $18 billion in the stablecoin that just got wiped out down to zero. And that's, again, that's not necessarily risk assets. That's stablecoin assets that people thought – Right. You know, there was essentially no risk to it. So you got 18 right. billion of what what people, what the the bag holders thought was risk free, and then you've got the coin that went with it, the floating coin that's down. I think like another like, I, I forgot the number exactly, but but you know, several billions. I think even more than 18. So it's not doing very well. We'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> we don't yet know. We don't yet know who the bag holders are, right? right? What the contagion is going to look like, what the margin calls. We don't yet know. So it's still early. Like I haven't seen any. I haven't heard of any big fund. You know, there's all these heartbreaking 
devastating threads on like Reddit and different places where people are, you know, they lost their 40,000 or whatever they lost was their life savings. And they're, you know, they're, they're threats. People are talking about suicide and different. I mean, it's, it's devastating. It's, it's real money, real people's money. You know, it's devastating. But also included in that is certainly some institutional money that's going to have contagion effects. And we don't yet know what that is. And the real tip, I mean, it's like, you know, kind of like the scales are like slowly, slowly tipping over. The real tip is going to be tether. And I think a lot of people just weren't weren't really thinking that there was urgency in the tether situation that now obviously it's become very clear to them here's a shot across the bow that there is a lot of urgency that things can change very fast um so look well, you know and, a run on it, tether is going to be a run on bitcoin and a run on bitcoin is going to be a run on all the risk assets i mean all the correlations all the asset class correlations have been spiking since the Fed took away the punch bowl. Stocks and bonds, yes. the correlation is at like a like a, I think a 15 year high. Um, all the assets are moving together. That is the key, right? The key is that all, you know if Terra blows up two years ago, no one cares and life goes on. But the fact that it's happening against the backdrop of the Fed raising rates and the market already being 20% off all time highs, and so people are already feeling this pressure. That, you know, they're watching paper losses. They're feeling like they have to deleverage. I mean, you know what happens, right? When when risk starts to come in, there's a credit crunch and, you know, people's uh, interest expense goes up and their discretionary spending goes down and it turns into this, you know, ugly cycle in the other direction, which, you know, I can't even remember the last time it happened in the United States. It was a long, long time ago. I wasn't involved in the uh, financial world the way that I am now, but... That is the difference because all these other booms and busts in crypto. And look, maybe Bitcoin will make it out of this alive. I, I don't know. I really have no clue how it's going to end. But the idea that, you know, people are always saying, well, Bitcoin had a 50% drawdown here and then it bounced back. And then it had an 80% drawdown in here and it bounced back. And, and you know, so people are saying, all right, well, look, all of those giant volatile drawdowns in Bitcoin's past um, are all healthy. Uh, it's all because, uh, you know, there's a constrained supply, so there's no excess liquidity to kind of soften the blows. Um, all good, right? Those arguments all make sense. But all of that happened against the backdrop of, you know, reckless monetary policy, tons of quantitative easing, ridiculous amounts of liquidity, I mean, for the last two and a half years, three years, it doesn't matter whether you have worked, you didn't work, whatever. You've had probably more money coming out your ass than you ever have, whether you're on unemployment, whether you're a fucking Uber driver, just relative to whatever you were making prior to the pandemic. Because, you know, the government stepped in with these PPP loans. And then, of course, the Fed flooded the markets with money. And so there, you know, on an institutional level and on a personal level, there's a lot of people that are seeing more Skrilla than they have in years. And that is the perfect environment to speculate. So now, now, is it like, could this be a profoundly different? I mean, at no point during Bitcoin's life cycle, Phil, has the Fed not been easing. Right. It's, it's exactly right. I think you Ever. just hit the nail on the head. And and look, you know, all the other times that, you know, Bitcoin has rebounded and come back so sharply, a lot of the money has come from VCs, it's come from Silicon Valley. And it, it came at times where, you know, tech companies are IPOing, 
So you've got, you know, a lot of, you know, younger tech people that are, you know, suddenly rich that have places to put the money. That's the demographic that's been putting in. You've got, you know, VCs that have been making money hand over fist. They've been deep and heavy into this stuff. And, you know, this is the first time that we have a pullback amid, you know, scarcer liquidity of right. flight to quality and specifically in the tech sector, specifically in this in the market that has been the most bullish on crypto. And, you know, and that's to say nothing of, of the leverage in the system that has to come out too. you know, there's, you know, the idea of there's only 21 million Bitcoins. Well, you know, exchanges are, are basically making markets on people naked and just selling unlimited Bitcoins, not to mention all sorts of derivative instruments. I mean, there's, you know, <laughs> there's really an infinite supply now. So, you know, as you know, as people have to come up with cash and get margin called, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like I said, I, I don't know. You don't know. We don't know where this thing is going. But when you look at the risk and you look at the, you know, the symmetry of the risk, right, the risk to the to the upside and the risk to the downside. And, you know, can they get this thing back to 60 and then beyond in the short term? Or, you know, is there going to be a liquidity crunch on the way down? Um, I just think that there are so many red flags right now that, you know, look, and, and a lot of people say, well, I'm holding and I've got a, you know, a 10 year time frame, a 20 year time frame. Okay, great. So ignore the noise and that's fine and good luck to you. But if you're thinking about it in the short term, I think you have to at least hedge yourself to the possibility that there could be, you know, uh, uh, you know, margin calls, like I said, from MicroStrategy, um, you know, uh, more blow ups. There could, you know, this tether situation could be absolutely massive. I don't think people appreciate how massive it could be. So a lot of risk, a lot of risk. Yeah, out there. It, it feels like Sailor getting carried out. And I'm not I'm not trying to foment here obviously but it it feels like sailor getting carried out is like a foregone conclusion i don't know why it just feels like it has to happen you know and that was the small discussion we had right before the podcast which was you know that you were short uh, the bito and you know we were talking about okay at what point might you cover and i think we both kind of typed to each other at the same time or i don't remember how it went but we both mentioned or one of us mentioned that you know sailor has to get his margin call and uh and you know maybe one of the other stable coins has to blow up or something um and i don't know it just to me it feels like that snowball is already rolling down the hill and that, that's what i'm seeing and again it could be wrong but that's what i'm seeing and i you know what i'm gonna shed no tears for this guy he he's one of the people that told people to uh to mortgage your house and put everything on bitcoin he literally there's a bitcoin conference in, in florida he's getting up the conference concludes as he gets up he turns around points to the audience and says do not sell your bitcoin yeah well and at the time of course bitcoin was about 30 percent higher than it is today <laughs> you know but but i mean to tell people that without any sense of risk management of their personal i mean just to be able to say that to to people is so irresponsible and unethical so you know he made a big bet and and i might do the same if, if he said to me hey let's flip a coin and on one side you're going to be you know this legendary hero and you're going to you know make you know however much he stood to make 100 billion and on the other side you're going to lose maybe a hundred million and you know mostly other people's money you're gonna blow up other people right and that's the bet he made and right. he made it consciously and he's no fool and he knew the bet he was making and he probably thought you know that he could talk his way into a bull market which is what he's basically been trying to do by talking about how Bitcoin's gonna bring world peace and solve every problem in the world and uh, yeah. I think it's incredibly dishonest and for him to get margin called will not make me lose sleep at night no me neither and now that you know you bring up that I just think about the hubris and it's just, you know, I, I can't remember what exactly happened, but I was watching a Max Kaiser appearance somewhere, and I've had Max po Kaiser on the podcast, and he can come on again anytime he'd like. 
But I was watching him at some conference, you know, where I don't know what he did, but he came out on stage and, like, you know, started throwing around $100 bills or gave everybody the finger or said, I'm fuck you rich or some some shit. I, don't, I forget what he did, but I was like, man, I'm like, this dude is screaming for a fucking comeuppance one way or the other, <laughs> you know, and you just can't help but, like, notice that I, I mean, look, and I don't, I don't want bad things to happen to anybody, Sailor or him or anybody. I, I really don't. But you know, in, in a case, and Mashinsky said that same shit during that fucking shift debate. You know, get out of fiat, do whatever you have to do to get out of fiat and get into Bitcoin. And I remember I'm, the the line stuck with me so much. That was in November. The line stuck with me so much that I remember where I was. I was I was jogging through the city, and I remember exactly what block I was on. I was at 13th and Sansom. I was heading west towards West Philly, and I remember where I was when he when he said that in the midst of that debate. Like just now, just now. I didn't recall it six months ago or whatever. As I'm thinking about it right now, I remember. Yeah, I was just about to cross 13th Street, heading to Broad Street on Sansom, and I heard Alex Mashinsky say something: "Get out of fiat. Do whatever you need to do to get out of fiat." You know, and I think he may have said like mortgage your house or something too. And I was just like, motherfucker, you know, like motherfucker. It's just you know that kind of shit is just nefarious to some degree. Because you're preaching to people that really do think, you know, here's a good analog, Phil. You know, I've looked at fraudulent companies for 10 years, right? Now I've worked for several companies that, you know, do research on companies that are proposed to be frauds. When you have a company that's a fraud and has zero financial performance, you know, is burning cash, has no revenue, you know, is shuffling money out of the company and related party transactions, um, you know, and it's just straight up a bona fide fraud. Their press releases for whatever it is that they're promoting, an Alzheimer's drug, an electric vehicle, whatever, are full of bombast and jargon and stuff that kind of rope-a-dopes people that don't know any better into thinking that they've found something incredible in a way that gets them to divert their attention away from the fundamentals and all the things that could be examined to prove that that particular entity is a fraud. And just to go back on what we said before, crypto has a lot of that. It has a lot of jargon. It has a lot of, you know, there's always an out for 99 out of 100 people to say, Phil, you don't understand it. You just don't get it. And, and I posted that video of Michael Saylor doing all those interviews uh, a week or two ago where people ask him questions and he keeps sighing, you know, like, well, Michael, can you explain this? And, huh, you know, every interview he's, huh, huh. you know, it's like if only we could just have the fucking huge brain that Michael Saylor has to, you know, to understand the complexities that that he gets that we don't get, you know, and it's that same kind of shit, that fucking jargon is just enough to muddy the waters for people that don't fucking understand the risks as clearly and as directly as they should also be communicated as well. And that shit fucking bothers me a little bit, man. And it should. It should. 
I mean, look, I think, you know, the, the idea of investor protection has gone too far. And the idea that, you know, you're not allowed to lose money in the stock market and, you know, right. I, I, you know, I think we're overregulated in a lot of senses. And, you know, I can go buy a house and, hey, guess what? The boiler doesn't work. Well, you know, it's on me. I should have had an inspector. I should have checked it out before I bought the house. I can go into a jewelry store right now today and spend probably $40,000 on a diamond ring. I have no clue what I'm getting. And I get it appraised <laughs> and they say, hey, idiot, it's only worth 20000 Okay, you know, I, I should have. You know, I should have done my, I should have done my homework. Yeah. Yep. We've gotten, we've gotten, we've gotten like so far away from that in the stock market. But this is like, I mean, this is even for, you know, someone libertarian like me and like yourself that, you know, feels a little bit that there should be more personal responsibility. They, there's just so little ethics. And, and like I said, there are Bitcoin purists and people that own it for reasons that you and I agree with for reasons about decentralization and, and the problems with the Fed and the capital markets. But those people have missed the opportunity to call out this bad behavior. And they, they just haven't done it because they've been so happy that, you know, it's great. Hey, Pomp gets, you know, all these 16-year-olds to put their babysitting money into Bitcoin. It provides a little price support. They're thrilled. They're happy. They don't call it out. And, you know, that's why I think they're kind of losing our sympathies on the way down. Yeah, somebody wrote the other day on Twitter, Ben McKenzie, free advice for celebrities who have profited from crypto. Disclose how much you were paid, say you are sorry, and give the money to victims of crypto fraud, career saved. <sighs> Right. And I thought that that made a good point. Right. You, you get all these people, you know, all these athletes and shit. And now you have the crypto dot com. They I mean, they they sponsor the Sixers here. You have FTX Arena and, you know, it's like it's just, you know, you, you got to just beware of things that you just can't explain their purpose simply to people. You know, I was just I was talking to my parents about this like last week. You know, Bitcoin was the topic of discussion. My, my mom's saying, like, you know, what is, what is it used for, you know? And I'm thinking, like, you know, like, what is it used for? Like, what, like, what is the point, you know? Like, I, I mean, I get the argument that it's, you know, one of the guys, one of these Bitcoin guys called it the soundest money known to man or something yeah. the other day. I forget who that was. But I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, I, I guess I can understand that argument, but I don't know. Not really. Yeah, and, and not to be the dead horse on this, but remember the Super Bowl, right? The Super Bowl commercials. You had FTX, you had Coinbase, you had eToro, you had Crypto.com. You've got like Larry David and LeBron James and Matt Damon in these commercials. That was three months ago. Just three months. <laughs> right? Isn't that amazing? Like sentiment is completely blown up. And, and you know, I mean, that's – I mean, someone is paying for that, right? <laughs> like, who's paying for, for FTX Arena and for the naming rights and for the commercials and for Matt Damon? It's coming directly out of, even in the bull market, it's coming out of the retail at the end of the day at zero sum. So anyway, but- And uh, what is it? Uh, Why yeah. do you need to own it? Why do you need to own Bitcoin, Phil? What's the bull case? Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Well, the bull case is that, you know, there's a, a greater fool. Is a greater fool, which, which, by the way, is not all that different from why you would own stocks. True. I mean, you're not buying stocks for the present value, the future dividends at this point. Well, certainly not over the last 15 years, people weren't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's the same thing. It's a greater fool play, and and it always has been, and everything else is is narrative. But um, I, I don't even think that's. I mean, you know, look, we're talking about that. I still think, relative to some of the bigger risks in the market, that crypto is still very much on the fringes. I think, you know, you just look in the corporate bond market. So, so here's something amazing. 20% of the total corporate bond issuers 
are what's called zombie companies where their uh, debt service payments are greater than their earnings. Right. Think about that. Now, yeah, in a zero interest rate environment, like, okay, no big deal. So you just refinance forever. But with rates going up, what is going to happen? Like, and, and that's, a you know, obviously that's a much bigger risk in the, you know, the grand scheme of things than, than crypto is. So, you know, crypto, yeah, I think there's all sorts of risks, and especially in the short term. But, you know, the, the larger markets as well are, you know, are just, I mean, it's just horrifying to think about what could happen in a real, um, you know, sustained period of, of not even, you know, unfair, of, of just, you know, reasonably fair interest rates. And therein lies the necessity for rates to go higher. Those types of companies have to be taken out back and shot. You know, they are just a drain on, you know, capital and a drain on resources. And, you know, they, they don't deserve, uh, you know, to exist, right? If, they're, if their debt service is more than what they're earning and they just constantly rely on issuing debt, that's not a business model. That's just, you know, how big can the bubble get before you eventually blow up? And that's why, you know, when you hear all the Austrians talk about why it's important to have recessions and why it's important for rates to go up. It's because those types of companies get carried out to the woodshed and finally shot as they should probably should have been years ago. Um, and then life goes on. That's the excess. That's the malinvestment that you hear, you know, all the Austrian people talk about that. Has That's to be, exactly right. Right. That has yep. to be dealt with. What do you think is going to happen with, um, I want to ask you what you think is going to happen with, uh, Russia and China and, you know, kind of on a global monetary uh, scale, what do you think's going on in terms of big, big macro, right? In terms of fiat currencies globally, in terms of, you know, Russia talking about backing the ruble with oil and gold and, you know, China issuing a digital currency. What what do you think on a big scale is going to happen? I mean, I mean, we're getting a little away from my, you know, from my uh, wheelhouse. I, you know, I don't know. I can speculate on certain things. I think the the lockdowns that we're currently seeing in China over, you know, the latest COVID strain are are odd, right? It's probably not how yes. you or I would act at this point, knowing what we know now that we didn't know a couple of years ago. So, are there ulterior motives? Looking at some of the disruptions in the supply chain, are there ulterior motives? Does our government have our best interests at heart with these things? Do they have their eyes wide open? I don't know. I think so, probably. But, you know, there are some, you know, there's some dark thoughts that I've had and I'm sure you've had where it doesn't always seem to be the case. So right. I don't know. I mean, I like, you know, these things are, you know, are beyond my expertise, but there are certainly things happening in the world that are um, that I personally do not understand. Yeah, well, that makes two of us. <laughs> That's why we have Miller Lite, you know, <laughs> And and Heaven Hill whiskey now now known as uh, Quality House or whatever it's called, right? Is there anything, Phil, that we haven't touched on that you want to uh, bring to the attention of my listeners? No, nah, you know th this is great. I, you know, really, I love your show. You know, I love that you just you know call it like you see it, no bullshit. And you know, you said it a bunch of times. I've said it as well. I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I might be wrong, you know, and I'm sure, you know, I know a lot of the people that I, you know, have a lot of respect for are very bullish on, you know, Bitcoin or some of the asset classes that we've discussed. And I fully recognize they might be right. I might be missing things and I might be wrong. You know, I just think people need to be aware of the, you know, the the symmetry in the short term that, you know, if risks are piling up and there's no immediate short term catalyst to turn things around, you know, this is the first time we're not going to have, you know, the Fed to come in and, and you know, emergency rate cut and you know yeah. you know qe 5000 like you know 
we're at least at least for now it looks like we're not going to have that you know i wouldn't be surprised the first decent cpi print all of a sudden rates go right back to zero i would not be surprised because you know we know they don't like to uh you know they they don't want their buddies at blackrock to have a down quarter here you know it's all market beta so um you know there's a lot uh there's a lot that could happen things could change quick but but you know i don't really know you don't know and you know let's let's i hope everyone does does well just keep yourself hedged you know keep yourself open to all outcomes it's a very, very, very different game with the Fed raising rates. I think that's a huge point that is worth harping on for just one more second. You know, there are generations of people who have gotten into the financial world, whether they're on Wall Street, whether they're an RIA, whether they're just, you know, trading on their own, that have become used to and accustomed to the idea of the Fed always having their back and that Fed put always going to be there. Because really, you know, look, X 2008, it's been there for, you know, two, two and a half decades almost, you know, right. I mean, going right after the dot-com crash. And then, you know, you had the little blip on the radar in 2008 and then that fuse lit and everything went ham for 15 straight years. And so you have so many market participants that their biases are, kind of grounded in this in these assumptions that the Fed is always going to be there that the market is always going to go up you know people don't understand like what you know what has happened in Japan right like a, 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 something like that would be inconceivable for US investors to kind of like go through that you know a market that just doesn't keep going up one way or the other it cannot uh, happen. Uh, ad infinitum it can't happen without stopping in perpetuity uh, there has to be mathematically an end game somewhere but that is the that's the fundamental point that i've never understood from permabulls is the idea that you know there's an equity risk premium and markets can go up at a greater you know at a premium to let's say gdp growth or inflation or whatever metric you know we're all growing at a certain rate but you know the markets can go up at an even greater rate well I mean, extract, play that out. How does that work that on a compounding basis over a hundred years or a thousand years or a million years, infinity years? Like, so what does that mean? Like valuations are just going to get like, you know, ever increasingly out of like eventually there's a true up. There has to be a true up at some point. It just doesn't work any other way. And, you know, but, but I think also for people that have never been through a bear market at the end of the day, like you said, creative destruction is a good thing. You know, new companies will come in when a company goes under, it creates an opportunity for other companies to come in with better balance sheets, with better risk management, do things new ways. It's not, you know, it's not all bad. It it will lead to better outcomes in the long run, as long as we have the will and the spine to allow it to happen. Yeah. I want to, um, do you have a moment or am I holding it? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I want to read this. Uh, this is a piece, just a couple of paragraphs from this piece. Now that we're talking about it, this is from March 28th. Um, and I wrote an article called Nothing Has Changed Except for Everything. And the, the article was a response to Jim Cramer's commentary uh, the week prior, which I think was March, uh, like the third week of March. Uh, so about about two months ago, where he proclaimed that he thought the bear market was over, you know. And, and I was thinking to myself, you know, as I wrote this, how does a guy that understands the Fed's effect on markets so well go on television and say something like that. And here's what I wrote. I wrote, for Jim Cramer and countless scores of other analysts and market participants, including some of the finest investors of our time, like Warren Buffett, the sum total of every investment recommendation or decision they've made, even if most of them have been right, 
have rested upon certain assumptions. Just as we all assume the sun is going to rise tomorrow when we wake, investment professionals assume that at the very foundation of our country's economy, monetary policy, and the U.S. dollar will all stay the same. This is what leads industry professionals to consistently reiterate that everything is eventually going to be okay and that stocks will still be a certainty in the long term. And then I write, how many times have you heard people debunk Austrian economists, I put debunk in quotes, uh, Austrian economists and skeptics by saying, well, if the currency collapses, we're all going to have bigger problems than the stock market anyways, so who cares? And, you know, I wrote this ignorance to a legitimate argument is the result of a mix of decades of positive reinforcement from the Fed and from the market and just plain old ignorance, uh, whether intentional or not, of circumstances that could potentially derail the assumption that they may not even know their analysis is based on. So to the point of what we're just saying, how profound of a difference has been made in the backdrop of things here, Phil, that people have not even recognized until the fed pivots how different are you know how different are the conditions that people may not even recognize yeah i mean i think that's well said you, you brought up japan japan went through 15 years of no growth while doing more quantitative easing on a relative basis than even we've done and holding you know and and, and playing with rates so you know when we get to a, a norm which i don't think they'll ever let us but if we ever get to a normalized free market um, and, you know, pure free market conditions, there is a reckoning in between now and then uh, the likes to which, you know, we're not talking about 15 year, you know, lack of growth in Japan. We're talking about a correction that that is, you know, way beyond devastating, possibly more than anything we've ever seen. And you know, conventional wisdom out there, you know, standard, you know, investment advice from your friendly financial advisor is, you know, time in the market, not timing the market. Right. It's right. just, you know, just invest, just buy low cost funds, cap weight. The methodology doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you're buying. I don't need to know what it is. It doesn't need to generate actual earnings or income. It doesn't matter. Just buy over the long term and you're going to be fine. And I think that's a very flawed assumption. And when, when you, you know, you dig in and you bring up, like you said, real concerns about it, you end up in one form or another. You basically get to a historical chart of the S&P or something like that. Right. You know, and it's a well past performance doesn't guarantee future results, but it's always worked out in the past and it has always worked out in the past and it might still work out for another 50 years but there is a time it, it just i mean the laws of mathematics it cannot outrun outpace the rest of the economy the markets can't outpace the economy on an indefinite basis it's just not possible right you eventually get to a point where valuations are just you know unsustainable um and and you know it's possible that we've that we hit that point you know towards the beginning of this year end of last year it's possible that you know we'll run again i mean timing it is, is probably even harder than identifying it but i, I think you're you know 100 percent right in what you said and i think that was very well written so what is the free market for thank you by the way uh, what is the free market kind of you know your ideal free market end game look like that you're talking about I don't think we're I don't think we're going to get there. I don't think we're ever going to get there. What would it, you know, what would it always, look like though? It, it would look like no Fed, no Fed at no, all. No Fed at all. Like even if you read like "End the Fed" by Ron Paul, even at the end he says something to the to the tune of you know well, I wouldn't want to completely eliminate the Fed. I would just want to severely uh, limit them or something. I forget what he wrote. But I read that book years ago. Um, you know what? I mean, is that is that like what you're saying? You're saying that we Here's should just completely comes eliminate the Fed. Here's what comes next: is we're going to have, you know, uh, you know, BlackRock and, and and other institutions like that are going to be advocating for the Fed, just like they did in Europe. They're going to be advocating to buy stocks. If we have a, a deeper crash in the stock market, they're going to be advertising to. They're going to be uh, uh, um, 
They're going to be instigating the government to use, you know, to, to issue debt, to buy stocks broadly, yes. to provide support. Then when, when, you know, if you get these zombie companies starting to implode and we start getting defaults all over the bond space, they're going to be advocating for uh, the federal government to, you know, bail them out, pick up the slack and, you know, essentially buy all the debt or otherwise backstop all these companies. So there's, there's no way you get into these things and there's no way out of it. You know, it's a, this old Talmudic thing where um, the laws of divorce come before the laws of, of marriage, right? And the reason why the rabbis say it's like, oh, well, that's because, you know, to teach a lesson that you should never get into a deal unless you know how to get out of it. Right. Well, the Fed is constantly getting into these different deals and there's no way out. They have, I mean, we're seeing that right now. I mean, they're not even trying to get – we're still at negative real rates of like negative 8%. Yeah, not right? even and, close. And the market is, is, is in a total total panic. So you know, there's no way out of what we're doing. So I don't know. I, I think it just is going to go until it blows, until it totally blows. I don't think there's going to be a smart – You know, all of a sudden everyone recognizes the error of their ways and the appreciation for free markets and slowly steps back from the Fed. I think they're just going to try to keep – the gravy train going. They're going to protect the establishment, the establishment companies for as long as they can. And hopefully, you know, not in our lifetimes, but there will be a day like all empires fall. There will be a day where they can no longer they can no longer sustain it. And then something new comes along. And hopefully that, you know, is better and based on the same principles that, you know, we've had a wonderful 300 years here. Yeah, only after they've exhausted all of the wrong solutions, too. That's, right. you know, the, the right solution is to let the market work. The wrong solution is everything that we're trying to do. Fucking Pelosi said last week, you know, that she was considering enacting a law that would make rising uh, that would make raising gas prices illegal. You know, it's like, you know, <sighs> power goes in one direction. You know, governments I mean, the history of the world. You know, the power, they want more and more and more power, more and more and more say, and they're, you know, undeterred by the fact that they've been wrong about everything or they got us into this predicament. Or that, that they does can't, not come into the equation at all. fix it. You know, they can't fix it. At some point, the, the problem is going to be too big. It probably already is that the market has to fix it. Prices have to go through the roof and then they will come down. The market has to get absolutely fucking assholed and then it'll come back up. You know, but like the medicine has to be taken. The idea that we can micromanage every single goddamn thing you know down to the price of oil like what kind of fucking absolute like what kind of shit do you have to be on to propose the idea of making raising gas prices illegal like where does she think gas comes from you know like like i i don't how how ignorant to them i mean i just you know and it's not just on the left on the right, you feel like these people on these fucking Senate finance committees and these congressional, you know, committees that they just wouldn't last fucking an, an hour in the private sector. I mean, it's like they have no, it's like they have zero understanding of economics. Not even, not, you know, there should be some fucking remedial course that you have to pass. You know, like if, if me and you want to go sign up for the military, right, and hold a gun in the middle of Fallujah while people shoot at us, or if we want to go be, you know, mail carriers and deliver letters to people all day, we have to pass a fucking some type of civil service exam, you know, which is basically like, hi, Phil, like, can you fucking walk and chew gum at the same time? Like, yes. All right, good. 
You know, like, why don't we have something like that for fucking members of Congress? And if we do well, have it, they don't. if we do have I'm it, they don't. Why, are we, you... why are we letting them cheat? Which they clearly are, if there is some type of test there. Is somebody yeah, but, providing... but Chris, if they taught it, right, they're not teaching Mises, they're not teaching Rothbard, right? They're teaching socialism. Yeah. They're teaching, we can fix it. Oh, if only, if only, you know, we set up a new agency that's the... You know, Department of uh, of Price Gouging Management or whatever. Uh, you know, all they know is more and more. The, the it's a one way wrench, and it only goes one way. And it's happened in every government and every empire that's ever existed on the planet. It goes. You know, the 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 rich get richer, the powerful get more powerful. They grab power at every opportunity, and it keeps going in that way until there's an uprising and we restart. And I, you know, look, I I hope I'm wrong, and you know, we're getting a little dark here, but you know, the principles. The principles that made this country great, you know, the Thomas Paine and the, you know, the, the idea of, of freedom and free markets. And, you know, first of all, I don't know if the population anymore has the ability to be self-sustained, has the has the will to, you know, it's hard. It's hard to be a, a free person and be on your own and not be dependent on, you know, corporations and governments and things like that. It's harder. And I don't know. I think we've gotten too soft for it. We are not a nation. We, we are not a nation of rugged individuals anymore. No, no, we're not. And even if we did have the will and the ability, I don't know if that power could be wrestled back. I think the cat's out of the bag and, and it only goes one way. So, you know, th there has to be a time of a restart. And it's not going to be, you know, the Libertarian Party is currently constructed. They can't even stand up to, you know, corporate censorship or things. I mean, they're not. They're totally toothless. So it's going to be something new. And it's, you know, probably, you know, a good 40, 50 years away. Yeah. Well, it's it's been encouraging to see that there have been some points that they've hit on that there's been adequate pushback for them to kind of and it just happened here in philly they just tried to reinstate the mask mandates like a month ago and the fucking city flipped out the whole the whole city flipped out you know the, mayor kenny was he was going to be the first guy to reinstate indoor mask mandates you know and it was like as soon as they made the announcement the entire city just went ballistic. The fucking business owners banded together. You know, people were just... And I know Democrats that are business owners, that are fucking coffee shop owners, that are art gallery owners, you know, to say, hey, we can't do it. Like, people don't want to fucking do it. They don't want to come in here. They don't want to patronize our businesses, patronize our businesses if we are requiring them to do this shit. You know, it's people on both sides of the aisle. And what happened? You know, like, Kenny, our mayor, got fucking lambasted on social media and everywhere else in the news, whatever. Meanwhile, all right, I'm, I'm watching pictures of him sitting at the fucking Marriott in Old City sipping a glass of wine with no mask on, which, you know, if you're not appalled by the hypocrisy of this whole fucking thing over the last couple of years, I don't know what you're waiting for. But the point is, you know, 48 hours later, the, the Philadelphia health minister came out and said, oh, we're rescinding the mask mandates because uh, the spike in cases has leveled off. It's like, motherfucker, just say... You were wrong to begin with, and the whole city flipped out. And it's the same thing with the fucking guy in Canada, okay? And the truckers, and, you know, freezing the bank accounts of citizens because you don't like what they're protesting about. It's like he knew he went a step too far. There was serious pushback about that, you know, to the point where it, it bled even into the mainstream. And, you know, when you, when you start doing shit where centrists— and people that are on the center left 
start saying, whoa, that, that's, that's a little too much. Then you know, you know, you're going to hear some serious push. So I'm encouraged by the pushback uh, of those types of things. But yeah, they are going to continue to test those boundaries over and over. And you know, like Jordan Peterson says in that one video, you know, they're going to move, they're going to move the lines just a millimeter at a time. You know, but if you if you give that millimeter, I used to like, I used to not understand the NRA, right? When I was like in my 20s, I'd be like, look, what the fuck's wrong with these people? Can't you just relinquish the right to have fucking fully automatic firearms or semi-automatics or AR, you know, whatever the fucking topic du jour was, can't you just give a little ground here and there? And it's like, man, now I'm a little bit older. I start to realize you really can't because you never get the ground back. You know, you don't repeal the Patriot Act. You don't repeal the fucking shit that gets put into place that gives people emergency powers and, you know, absconds with your civil liberties. Like, those things never get rolled back. So, at some point, it's like, how how far are they going to go? And is there going to be this point, Phil, where people finally say, enough? If, if what happened the last two years with COVID wasn't the impetus for that, for people to say they've had enough, then I can't imagine... I can't imagine what could be yeah. because, I mean, you know, everything was mismanaged every step of the way. And, uh, you know, we have as much freedom as we're willing to demand. And that's not very – it's not very – it's a lot less than it was just 20 years ago growing up. Right. Right? Just in, in my lifetime, I've seen a real change. And, you know, like I said, I think it's only going one way. And I think there are people out there that are, you know, courageous and courage in short supply and they're willing to, you know, fight for things. But there's not a lot of them. There's not a lot of them. There's not enough of them. And – you know, it makes me a little worried, but look, you know, these are the cycle of things and, you know, I feel like we're, we're kind of being uh, downers over here. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, people who've bet on progress and, and optimism have, uh, you know, have, you know, pretty much always done well. So, you know, we don't know what's coming around the That's corner, true. And, you know, yeah. That's true. We, we have as much freedom as we're willing to demand. I like that a lot. I think we should leave it there, but also... How the fuck do you say your last name? Is it Bach or Bach? <laughs> it's Bach. Okay. So here's your, your outro. I'll get it right. The one, the only, Phil Bach. Thank you so much, dude. It was awesome having you on for the first time ever, and uh, let's do it again. Thank you, brother. Anytime. All right. Talk to you soon. That was Phil Bach. Happy to have him on for the first time, and uh, if you want to know more about him, I put all this shit in the podcast bio uh, thing, whatever description it's called. Look, I don't care. I got one foot out of the chair already. I can't wait to uh, get up and enjoy my Saturday. I'm really glad that you guys joined me. Thank you again to my patrons, people that continue to support the podcast. Uh, You guys make it all happen, and uh, I'll be back soon. Hopefully, a lot more to talk about in the days and the weeks to come. For right now, I'm out. Peace.